This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 17, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The right to try is an attempt by many state governments to allow terminally ill patients access to drugs not yet approved by the FDA. 30 states have now enabled right to try, but the feds still stand in the way. Starley Coleman is the VP for Communications at the Goldwater Institute. We spoke today. The right to try law is really the opposite of the right to die. Right to Try is about giving people the opportunity to take an investigational medication that is in a an FDA-approved clinical trial when they cannot qualify for that clinical trial that they think will save their life or could help them live longer. So these are drugs that are not approved by the FDA for prescription, but they are involved in a process in which people have opted in to say, I want to be a subject of this drug, I have this particular ailment, I meet all these criteria, uh, and uh, you're wanting to then extend that ability to people who are not participating in a clinical trial. That's exactly right. So right now, the way that the drug approval process works, it's a a company has to go through a three-trial phase. So the, the phase one trial is a safety trial where the FDA gives people a dose to, or the, well, the FDA approves doctors to give people a dose to figure out if a drug is safe for human consumption. Phase two, they say, okay, the drug is safe. We're going to give it to more people and we're going to test some other things. We're going to look at efficacy, how it starts to interact with other drugs, other diseases or ailments a person might have. Phase three, same thing as phase two, just larger. So it goes through this three-step process. Right to Try would give um, people who are not able to enroll in a clinical trial but who have some kind of illness access to drugs that have passed the phase one stage so we know they're safe for humans to use and they're somewhere in that phase two or phase three process. And just to put that in perspective, fewer than 1% of all cancer patients in America are able to enroll in a clinical trial. When you think about the number of people that have cancer, right, that you know that have you have interacted with in your life, and you think about fewer than 1% of, of all of the cancer patients in America can enroll in a clinical trial. That is an extremely complicated process. It's very hard to get into a clinical trial, especially if you're sick, if you're really sick. They want people who are just sick enough, but not too sick for clinical trials. And for some of these diseases like ALS, the progression of a disease can be so fast. You can be diagnosed and eight months later already have lost your ability to walk, talk, use your legs, use your arms. So they move too quickly for a, a typical clinical trial process to work for them. That's why they need access to drugs that are being used in clinical trials uh, but that they can't enroll in. And for many people who are have a death sentence by virtue of their uh, ailment, uh, the safety part of the FDA process, frankly, might not be that important to them. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the only people who are eligible to take a drug under a right to try law are people who are terminally ill. They have to have a terminal diagnosis from a physician. I was just in a meeting an hour ago with uh, a man who has late stage ALS. He's dying. He's dying. He will be dead by the end of the year. He knows that. His family knows that. His six children know that. And he and the FDA is telling him that he cannot have a drug that is totally safe 
being used in a clinical trial, but he just can't enroll in the clinical trial because he lives too far away to travel to the clinical trial location, he can't have that drug because they say it's not fully approved and it could hurt you. He's going to die. He's saying, give me, please give me this little bit of control over the last bit of my life to let me make the own decision, my own decision about what risk I am willing to tolerate. And to the extent people live far away, um, access to these kind of drugs in a trial uh, can become a question of wealth. Absolutely. And, and, we, and we see that not just uh, within trials, but also drugs that are already approved in other countries. Steve Jobs is a great example. He was able to go to Switzerland for a treatment for pancreatic cancer that's been available in Europe for many, many years. There are all sorts of other uh, drugs and treatments that are available in other developed you know, first world countries where if you can afford it, you can move. There's We tell a story a lot about a little boy in Phoenix who um, developed osteosarcoma when he was 11 years old. His mom is a lawyer. His dad's a lawyer. They make a great living. They were able to relocate to London for a year so he could receive treatment for a drug that has been given basically the highest uh, award for d- pediatric cancer treatment in the UK and has been in clinical trials in the United States for 10 years. And he is, I mean, he's alive today because he was able to access that drug. And he was only able to access that drug because his family could afford afford it. And I mean, this is really one of those issues where if you have wealth, you have access to medication. And for people who are worried about the, you know, the, the, the gap between the haves and the have nots on stuff like this, you know, making drugs that are available to a very select few in clinical trials available to everyone who is terminally ill with the disease that's being tested in the trial is a real equalizer. What is the relationship between states and the feds when it comes to medicine generally and specifically with respect to uh, drug approval? So there's, there's no question that the federal government at this time has the authority to decide which drugs are approved and, and treatments and devices uh, that are able to be used in any state. There's no question about that. This law doesn't challenge the FDA's authority to approve a drug. In fact, it really kind of relies on the FDA process in a way because, as I mentioned, the the only drugs that are available to pe- people under these laws have to have passed the FDA phase one trial, and they have to be in an ongoing uh, trial that is working towards ultimate approval. So um, there's no question that the FDA contr- ultimately controls the drugs that show up on pharmacy shelves. However, the difference here is that um, there's also no question that the states have the authority to regulate what kinds of medical procedures are available to people living within their state borders. Abortion is an example. Um, The right to die is an example. Uh, So this is really no different than that. People are using drugs that already have approval from the FDA to be tested and used in humans, and they're just expanding the eligible patient population. So that's definitely within a state's purview to do. The chief criticism I hear from smart people on on this is how would making those drugs more broadly available affect the quality, 
and the process of clinical trials themselves? That's a great question, and it's a real concern, right? The, if you throw a whole bunch of people with really challenging medical situations into the mix of a clinical trial process, what happens to the trial data, right? That's a, that's a real question. So one of the things that we have uh, been encouraged to see is um, there's, there's actually a bill that's been introduced in the U.S. Senate to prevent the FDA from interfering with the implementation of state-passed right-to-try laws. And in that bill, there's language that would require the FDA to consider the results of, a, of drugs that are given to people in a clinical trial separate from the results of the drug being given to people outside of the clinical trial. So we really feel like ultimately this is going to give the FDA and, and scientists and researchers and physicians more information earlier about the drug, how it interacts with other medications, how you know it can be used in combination with, with maybe other diseases or other challenges that someone is having. They're ultimately going to end up with more information than they do from a straight clinical trial where everything is some completely tied controlled. The DEA plays a weird uh, role here as well, and I think that's probably what doctors are worried about, that if, if their state passes this and they were to move ahead and say to certain sick people, hey, you can, you can have this drug, that the feds and the DEA controls whether or not doctors are able to prescribe medication would come down on them and shut them down, essentially take away their livelihood. So every drug that is in a clinical trial process has been given a specific number uh, by the, the DEA that is checked with the FDA. And once you have this number attached to a medication, that allows interstate shipment of the drug. It allows doctors to uh, you know, work on clinical trials in other locations than maybe where the drug is manufactured, and all of that kind of stuff is all sorted out. So as long as a drug has that number, there, there shouldn't really be um, any reason for the DEA to be worried that a doctor is doing something that he shouldn't be doing. But we acknowledge that there is a fear that uh, a federal agency could really um, come after a doctor or a drug company who is providing help to a patient under right to try. And that's what the uh, federal bills that I, that I mentioned um, aim to do. They just aim to take that uncertainty away. Um, they would prevent any federal agency from, from interfering with the implementation of a, of a state-passed right to try law. And doctors do really worry about this stuff. There are some doctors who prescribe large quantities of drugs that are available for prescription who are constantly concerned that uh, the DEA would shut them down. Look, anytime a federal agency can come in and you know, take away your medical license and your ability to, you know, take care of your family and pay your mortgage, that's a serious concern. And we're not, you know, we certainly don't take that lightly. That is absolutely, that is a rational fear for a doctor and a drug company to have right now, you know, in in the their calculation of whether or not they want to make drugs available to a patient under a right to try law. We don't know yet what the federal government is going to do. This has only been happening for the last two years. The first state to pass a right to try law was Colorado, and that was literally 25 months ago. So we just don't have very much data about how this is going to happen. We know there are doctors using their state laws treating people, but we don't, they are not 
public and out there yet and letting the FDA know that the, that they are doing this. So we just don't know what's going to happen. How many states have enabled this so far? 30 states have passed right-to-try laws. Red states, blue states, purple states. It's been signed by seven Democratic governors. In every state where it has passed, it, it passes with overwhelming bipartisan support. In fact, in most states, in, in 20 of the 30, it's passed without one dissenting vote in either the state House or the state Senate. So it's an extremely bipartisan, popular um, measure that, you know, really when you as we've been going around the country working on this, it's really incredible when you, you come into a hearing room to talk to lawmakers about this issue flanked with patients who say that they want this and, you know, people there to testify on behalf of someone in their family. It's really incredible um, how this is such a common sense idea for regular people. And it's really only a handful of people in Washington who don't seem to have that same view of how common sense this is. What would the feds have to do to accommodate it? The feds could make right to try the the law today. They don't need enabling authority from Congress. They already have all of the authority that they need. In fact, in Europe, there's a situation that's similar to right to try, which is basically the standard of care there. If a drug has passed the equ equivalent of a phase one trial in Europe, it's available to people with provisional approval. Um, it still continues to go through the rest of the approval process, but but doctors are able to prescribe that drug to patients. And that's one of the reasons why the drug approval process in Europe is so much shorter, so much less expensive, because they have accounted for all of these other measures. And also, I will say, in Europe, um, when people take a drug, even if it's not approved, uh, private insurance or state insurance covers the cost as well, which is a significant challenge for some of these drugs. In thinking about how the pharmaceutical industry itself would come down on something like this, I have two minds because one, uh, pharmaceutical companies would like to see their drugs get to market more efficiently and more quickly. But at the same time, there's a rent-seeking argument that would suggest that uh, larger uh, pharmaceutical companies that have done all of this investment and don't want their drug to get beaten out by a smaller competitor that was able to get to people as quickly uh, as their drugs, where they have invested a lot in compliance with FDA processes. I could see uh, big pharma versus little pharma on this issue being divided. That's exactly what's happening. It's big pharma versus little pharma. And big pharma um, says they have they have made statements that they are not supportive of the right to try. Well, they say that they're neutral, but then the words when you look at their their the words they use, they're they're clearly opposed to the right to try laws. Um, you know, they say publicly that it's a safety question for these patients, which we've covered is is kind of a a goofy argument to to you know, put it plainly, um, these people are going to die. They're not worried about uh, whether or not it's going to give them a really bad headache. <laughs> um, they, you know, they they want a chance to to see their kids graduate from high school um, and spend time with their grandchildren. Um, and and then of course, you know, their their business concern trumps 
you know, a lot of policy questions, I think, that they have to answer. And they certainly have, have made it known where they come down on this. Uh, and it's really unfortunate that the pharmaceutical companies are the ones saying they don't want to provide treatment to dying people. Starley Coleman is the VP for Communications at the Goldwater Institute. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 